the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday, you already know this, but in case you're new, every weekday here at four, we have this program to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it, uh, questions about things that you're experiencing in your day-to-day life. What would Jesus' perspective be on what Whatever it is that you're struggling with, we'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. 340-9585 is your local number. 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. And you can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is, and we want your calls, is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Well, because it's Wednesday night, tonight, of course, here at Calvary Chapel is our Old Testament Bible study in First Samuel. We're going to finish Chapter 19 and do as much of Chapter 20 as I possibly can. Um, Saul is spinning out of control, and David is going to be the object of his wrath. Uh, lots to learn for New Testament Christians from it. Uh, tomorrow will be the date day edition with Paula. She'll be live in studio. Ladies, it's the one day a week that we really encourage you to call. If you need any encouragement or strength we'd lo- uh, or help in any area, uh, she'll be here tomorrow on the program. And by the way, uh, a reminder on Saturday at 1030, our women's fall luncheon, Paula will be sharing her testimony. We'd love for you to, to come. We've still got some space left, not much, but we've still got some space left. And we would love to have you. It's $20, and uh, Paula will be sharing. And she's just part of what's going on, but there's going to be a lot of neat things, a lot of beautiful women, and you will be blessed. So, uh, radio audience, you are more than welcome to come and to join. Uh, one other thing I want to put out. I, I asked, uh, I mentioned uh, last week that uh, dear friends of ours, Gail and Ada Irwin, are going to be here on Wednesday, September the 27th. They are not going to be here now. Uh, they were involved in a pretty serious car accident just this morning in Palm Desert, California. Uh, and uh, Ada is not doing really, really well. Um, three broken vertebrae, she has a broken wrist, and she has a broken collarbone, and in a lot of pain. So uh, these are dear, dear friends of ours, and uh, wonderful, wonderful servants of our Lord Jesus. Uh, If you could remember Gail, G-A-Y-L-E, and Ada, A-D-A, Irwin, if you could keep them in your prayer list, we would really appreciate it very, very much. Uh, And I'll keep you posted on their progress. Gail is not seriously hurt. He says he feels like he uh, participated in a football game with no pads on. But other than that, his concern is for his wife, Ada. So thank you very, very much for that. Okay, let's get right into the program. Um, Tony called into the studio with this question. Does the Bible condemn me if I judge 
another Christian. Tony, uh, it doesn't condemn you. Uh, remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to remember that always, Tony. Romans 8.1 is um, God's heart. We have been forgiven of our sins. Now, uh, I think the real problem is what you mean by if you judge another Christian. If you tell somebody that what they're doing is wrong, and you can identify in the Bible why what they're doing is wrong. For instance, if somebody says, I'm going to leave my wife and, and God's okay with it, you can say, no, God's not okay with it, that's sin. And and if they say, judge not lest you be judged, uh, you're not condemned, you're not judging them. It's the word of God that's judging. If somebody's having sex with somebody they're not married to, you can say you need to stop that. It's wrong. And if they say, don't judge me or God will condemn you, they're wrong. So remember, we owe it to people to tell them that any behavior that they're involved in that is sinful, we owe it to tell them. We owe it to convince them as best we can um, that what they're doing is wrong. They need to repent and get right with God. If it was true that if we told people what they're doing, sorry, that was judging and caused us to be condemned, well, then Jesus would be condemned. John the Baptist would be condemned. The Apostle Paul and Peter and John and James and all of the others, they would be condemned because behavior is important. Now, if, Tony, you're, con- you're judging their heart, if you say, I don't think you're a believer, I don't think you're saved, then we cross over a line. Remember, we're still not condemned but we're on very, very shaky ground. And uh, too often we look at things from uh, our perspective. And if they say they're doing something or they're right and you think, no, they're not wrong, we judge hearts and we judge motives. And when I say judge hearts, that's primarily what I mean, we judge motives. And if we judge motives, Tony, then we've crossed the line. Again, we're not condemned because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But... We don't want to judge hearts. We don't want to judge motives. What we want to do is examine behavior. By the way, Tony, we're commanded to judge or to inspect behavior. If we love someone, I want to say this one more time because it's important. If we say we love somebody and we let them sin and don't say anything to them, we don't confront them with their sin, then we ourselves fall into sin. Now, nobody's going to like it when you tell them what they're doing is wrong. But that's between them and the Lord. So we make sure our heart is right. We make sure that there's no uh, unrepentant or open sin in our lives. And then we can tell somebody, because I love you, I want you to stop. God's Word says this is wrong. That's not judging at all. That's loving. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate the question. 340 Rodney also called in to the studio and said, is it right for women to be pastors of a church? And why does Paul say for women to be quiet in the church? Um, There's two different questions there, Rodney. It is not right for women to be pastors of a church, period. Uh, End of comment. Um, um, Somebody once said to me recently, well, what if you go to a church as a woman pastor? And my response was, you don't have a pastor if a woman is the one who says that she's the pastor of the church. A woman can't be a pastor. That means she's not called by God to be a pastor. doesn't mean she can't teach the Bible, but she can't teach it from a position of pastoral authority. Uh, She can't teach men or have that authority over men. Uh, So the, the role of a pastor, as clearly as the Holy Spirit can say it over and over and over, is the responsibility of male leadership He must be the husband of one wife. He must, and it's always in the masculine. So he must. So obviously you need to be a man. A woman simply cannot be a pastor and be there because God called her to be. She can usurp authority, and obviously, Rodney, we see that in our church culture all the time. We see uh, many, many churches who have women pastors. And the truth is, they simply don't care what the Word of God says. They have rationalized it uh, since they have the gift of teaching or, or they feel like they're called, that they have every right as a man to do uh, what, what they want to do. The problem, of course, is that God sees it differently. Sometimes, Rodney, we forget whose church it is. Is it our church or is it 
Jesus' church, and he's the head of the body. So that's the first part. Why does Paul say for women to be quiet in the church? Uh, Rodney, when he says that, writing to the Corinthians, he's addressing a local church that's completely out of order. In Corinth, there was, uh, they're Christians. I mean, you wouldn't know it by their behavior, but Paul addresses them as brothers, sisters in the Lord. So we know he's talking to believers, but they're carnal believers. That means they're out of control. And the church, which needs to be a church in order, is a church completely out of order. And in Corinth, what would happen? Now, remember in the, 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 the old uh, uh, way of doing church, especially in uh, an Oriental culture, uh, and the Bible was written in an Oriental culture, um, men and women would sit on different sides. And in Corinth, uh, the women would be shouting across the aisle at the men, the men would be shouting back at them, and they refused to be uh, in submission to their husbands, they refused to be um, uh, controlled, uh, even by the leaders of the church, and they wanted an equal voice, and they were very, very loud about it. The Greek word that's used uh, about uh, uh, the, the, the way they were communicating, it's a word that describes a harangue, and it was defiantly proving that I can say what I want. Paul is saying women should be quiet in the church. If they have a question, go home and ask their husbands. You see, the whole point of that is they were rebelling against the authority established by God. And so he says in Corinth for the women to be quiet, but he deals with a specifically cultural, local situation. Now, here's how we know that. In the same letter to Corinth, he talks about women who are prophetesses. The New Testament had prophets and prophetesses. There were women. We know Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses, and there were others. So uh, he, he, he talks about prophesying men and women. He also talks about women praying in church. Now, you can't do that if you're quiet. So he didn't mean they were unable uh, or not permitted to speak, Rodney. What he was saying is very simply that um, they need to be in order and under submission, praying or speaking under the authority of their husbands who are under the authority of Christ, who is under the authority of God the Father. And that's the example given in in the letters to the Corinthians. Now, one other comment on this, Rodney, because in our culture, not only would it be offensive for women to be quiet in church. We had a guy who came to our church many years ago, and he always sat in the front row, and he was one of those loud ameners, you know, and and uh, always talking back to, the, to, to me as I was teaching, which doesn't normally happen here at Calvary Chapel. And his wife and his kids had to sit in the back row. And that was his order. He said, you know, she's under my authority. That's where women are supposed to be. And that was really, really unloving. It was really unkind. It was wrong. And so uh, in our church culture, women are completely equal in every way with men, except for the role of a pastor or an elder or leader in the church. So... um, That's why Paul says for the women to be quiet in Corinth. He's not talking uh, about the women here in San Antonio, Texas, Rodney. Women have a lot of value to add. We men who sometimes treat our wives because we consider ourselves, the Bible considers us as heads of the household. Uh, We sometimes act like that makes us dictators. Our wives are our partners. I would not be able to survive in doing what I do without Paula. And there's a whole lot that she says that makes a big difference in the way I live, the decisions that I make. So uh, this is not a correction or an admonition to the church in San Antonio, Texas. Thanks, Rodney. Good question. Here is Becky. Becky says, these are all callers into the studio, so not wanting to get on the air. In Revelation, there's a reference to your name being scratched out from the Lamb's Book of Life. I've been told once your name is there, it's there. How is your name scratched off? Becky, you're not reading it carefully. It doesn't say that your name is not scratched out. What it says, and this is the greatest promise of security imaginable, it says, I will in no ways blot out your name from the Book of Life. So it doesn't talk about scratching it off or blotting it out. It says it won't be done. It's impossible to be done. 
So we have to read carefully. And we, we think logically, and so uh, he says, if you do this, I will in no ways blot your name out of the book of life. So our immediate response is, well, then it must mean he blots some out. That's not what it says. And that's what we need to understand. Careful reading and careful study. One of the greatest things, uh, Becky, in my day-to-day life is knowing that there's a book in heaven, a book of my life, with all of my sins and all of my horrible, horrible, horrible things. And I've probably got multiple volumes. And yet every page that's opened, every accusation that's ever been made, we open the book and every page is covered with the stains of blood. And the person reading it says, I can't read the accusations against you because they all are covered by the stains of blood. Thus, where are your accusers? There are none. But there's another book, Becky. The Lamb's Book of Life. And when my name went in that book, it was there forever and ever and ever. What's also interesting to me is that 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 book always had my name in it. It's a book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. So my name is there. Nothing can be done to remove it. So this is a great, great passage of assurance and security, Becky. I hope that makes sense to you. Just because he says, I will in no ways blot your name out, doesn't mean that some instances he blots people out. Because Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, guarantee is only as good as the one who offers the guarantee. And since our guarantee is a God who cannot lie, a God who is perfect and holy and just, then we are pretty secure in the knowledge that we're always going to be with him. Great questions, Becky. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dale. It says, Pastor Ron, can a pastor be restored to his position after falling into public sin? Uh, Dale, yes, it depends what the, the, the public sin is, of course. Uh, I personally believe uh, that there are some sins that disqualify somebody from being a pastor. It kind of goes under the too much is given, uh, much is required uh, line of thinking, line of reasoning. Uh, if you've been given much, then then much more is going to be required for you. Uh, we're responsible to respond to what it is that we've been given. Uh, as a pastor, I can answer this question very personally. Uh, I believe that what God has asked me to do is the greatest privilege and honor in my life. Um, you know, other than being saved and other than being Paula's husband, being a pastor... Uh, being able to minister to the people here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio that God loves so much and that I love so much is the greatest honor in my life. And because God considered me worthy of the calling, now I'm not worthy, he considered me worthy. My responsibility is to walk worthy of that calling, to walk worthy of the name of Christ. And by the way, that's true for every believer, whether you're a pastor or not. We need to walk worthy of being called by the name of Jesus and whatever it is you're called to do. We need to live our lives. That's what walking worthy means. We need to live our lives in the light of that calling. So when a pastor sins and when he repents, then he is eligible to be restored. Now, again, I believe there are some sins that so betray the trust. I think a man cheating on his wife disqualifies him from being a pastor again. A pastor who cheats or has sex, even if he's not married, has sex with somebody in the church. I think that disqualifies him from being a pastor again. I actually just saw a restoration just this week, somebody brought it to my attention of a pastor who was found to be having a sexual relationship with a married woman in his church who also happened to be his goddaughter. I was quiet for a minute because that was, I want everybody to hear the whole city of San Antonio going, yuck! But she was married. She's, not, she's an adult. He's obviously much older. 
And after three months, he was restored by his sending pastor. That should never happen. That should never happen. If I get caught in a lie, if I plagiarize what somebody else wrote, or uh, if I, I just uh, I, I have behavior that isn't characteristic and I'm truly repentant, those are sins that are obviously forgiven. And I'm eligible to be restored. But if my sin is sexual, especially if my sin is against somebody um, or, or with somebody in the church body, I think that disqualifies, rightfully disqualifies. Uh, all of my pastors here uh, at Calvary Chapel, Dale, know that um, we're looking to restore people and establish people in their callings. But if they violate that calling um, in sexual immorality, then they're not going to be restored. There's other things God can use them when they're properly repentant and when they've gone through a process of restoration. However, I wouldn't want to represent to a church body again that these are men that could be trusted. So that's my opinion, and I will say at the same time, Dale, that there are a lot of people um, who disagree with my opinion, and um, um, pretty much nobody's perfect, so God forgives, why can't we forgive kind of thing. There are consequences to sin, and I believe a pastor who sins sexually, especially, uh, as I said, with somebody in the church, I believe that they have... um, cross the line of being able to be restored where they could be trusted again with the role of a pastor. I hope that helps, Dale. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. We would love your live calls and questions. Um, here is, uh, I'm going to wait and save this question until the, I've got a DACA question, so I'm going to save it till the other side of the break because I think we're inside five minutes now and I don't have time for it. So here's a step from, a question from Michael. What steps can I take to deepen my walk with Jesus? Um, That's a question I'm happy to answer, and I'm glad, Michael, that you're asking it. Um, A couple of things. First and foremost, you've got to be sure. Every single day, it's not just a once and for all thing, but every single day you've got to wake up and make sure that your heart is right with God. By that I mean you've got to keep short accounts of sin with the Lord. If you mess up, repent quickly. Because the only way you can deepen your walk with the Lord is to be with Him if you're out of fellowship with Him because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Uh, even for an hour, Michael, then you're, you're in a dangerous position. The enemy will always be there to try to take advantage of those, those opportunities. So first, make sure you're right with God every day. Second, you need to be a man who loves your Bible. You need to love your Bible. Uh, walking with Jesus is a decision. It's not an emotion or a feeling. It's a decision. The only way you can know how to walk with Jesus is to be a man of God's Word. And there's simply no other way. There's no shortcut. I remember in college, you know, um, when, when we had to read books that we didn't think were of value and uh, we were going to be tested on it, they had cliff notes, sort of a short summary that could could get you through the test. There's no cliff notes in Christianity. So you need to be a man who loves the Word of God. Thirdly, and I don't know how old you are, Michael, if you have a family, but your family has to be bathed in God's Word, and you're the one responsible to do that. Your wife and your children, if you're married, need to be um, um, washed in the water of the Word. It's that simple. If you're not married, if you're single... Um, then then you've got to be responsible for your own walk with the Lord. Fourth, you've got to be a member, an active member, and I don't mean membership in terms of organizational, but you've got to be an active participant in a regular church, a local church. That means you've got to find a church, you've got to stay in a church, commit to that church, and serve that church. Jesus said, that we are to produce fruit, not just fruit, but abundant fruit that will last. And the only way we can do that is to minister to the people he loves. I've said this many times on this program. My church is so tired of hearing it that I don't even have to say it anymore. But when you begin serving his body, that's when you begin to grow exponentially. 
That's when God's Spirit is being poured out upon you and through you. That's when people can see and, and, and recognize the gifting of God in your life. That's when people can see your passion, your zeal for the Lord. That's when your light can so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father. So you've got to be committed to a church. We have a culture where people change change churches every time somebody offends them or, well, I don't agree with that, so I'm going to go to a new church. Uh, Or somebody confronts them, see, you're not supposed to be doing it. Well, I'm just going to go find a new church. Stay committed to a church. Find a good church that teaches the Word and get involved serving in that church. Be there for others. You know, one of the great things, for instance, tonight is our Bible study here at Calvary Chapel for our Old Testament midweek study. There's going to be a lot of people here who are hurting. And the real ministry that happens, not just the ministry when I teach the Word and the Spirit of God is working, but the real ministry happens before and after church, one-on-one where people are talking. So, Michael, when you go to church... Don't talk to people you know. I mean, don't ignore them. But find people you don't know. Look for people who are hurting. And I promise you, your walk will get so deep and so rich. You won't ever have to answer that, ask that question again. Hey, thanks for the question, Michael. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. We would love your live calls. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. <laughs> Welcome back to the second half of the program. My producer saying, see, John, who was the announcer there, said, we're waiting for your calls. We're waiting for your calls at 340-9585. Here's the question that I didn't think I could do in the, in the little bit of time we had. It's from Avery. I think that's a male name. He says, what should our response as Christians be to the announcement that DACA is ending? DACA has been in the news. It's a deferred action for childhood arrivals. That's what it stands for. Uh, It is an immense problem in our country. Uh, These are young men and young women who uh, they're also referred to as dreamers. Uh, There's been a big push uh, for the last four or five years um, to, to, to give them amnesty and, and a, a clear path to citizenship um, and this battle between uh, immigration and illegal immigration that goes on and on and on. So what should our response be? Uh, our response is Christians, and that's all I care about. I don't want this to be a political answer at all. Uh, I don't care what your stand is on immigration or illegal immigration. Um, what I care about is your heart for Jesus. So I, I don't want anybody to confuse this. I, I am not, I repeat, I am not making a political statement here. However, as a Christian, our response is to do several things. First and foremost, we need to pray. We need to pray that today there are some uh, three quarters of a million people who Uh, don't know that they will be in this country six months from now um, and who've never been anywhere else. These are some of our best and brightest. These are are educated people, some even serving in the military. And we need to pray for them because this is a frightening situation. Imagine if somebody came to you and said, the only place you've ever known, the only home you've ever known, you can't stay there. So we need to have compassion and pray for them. Secondly, we need to pray for our president and for our Congress who's wrestling with this legislation. That's all we can do. We are not a president. We are not legislators. Um, We vote for them. We live in a representative form of government. They are our representatives. You can make your opinions known to them if you do so respectfully. But they're the ones who are going to make the decision. We need to pray that they would have God's heart. Thirdly, This is the most important. Some of those people are in our churches. That means they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. In some cases, they're serving in ministry. 
we have to not only be compassionate, but we need to support them. And as Christians, because we don't legislate, we have to have Jesus' heart for people. Now, here's what I want everybody to understand in this situation. How is it possible that we could condemn anybody who was brought here illegally by their parents, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, when they had no say-so? They were just doing what their parents told them. They were actually uh, fulfilling the biblical mandate to, to honor your father and mother, to be obedient to your parents, to do as they say. They find themselves in this country. It wasn't their responsibility to, to go through the process of citizenship. They knew nothing about it. And then years pass, in some cases 15 or 20 years pass, and now they're caught in the crosshairs of this. How is it biblical for us to judge them for the sins of their parents? Secondly, we have to have compassion toward the parents who brought them here. How is it possible that any Christian could condemn somebody who came to this country, legally or illegally, to escape being murdered, to escape the drug cartels, to escape the horrible, horrible living conditions, or even who just wanted to be able to provide a better life for their family. So rather than condemn, rather than have strong political opinions, our hearts should be governed by Jesus' opinion which is an opinion, it's the law of love. And whether somebody is an illegal or not, our responsibility is to share the gospel with them, our responsibility is to love them. You know, we ask God to, we pastors, you know, we ask God to help our churches grow, add God added daily to the church, such as we're being saved. And he does that. What, what are we to do if we find out that they're illegals? So we're to say, oh, we didn't mean you. So these are the things that Christians have to do. We've got to parse our opinions through God's heart, through his word. And there's no conceivable way that God would say to us, be unkind, be lacking compassion, up in the lives of these people, just because they came from a different place. Now, we're also to honor the laws of this country. So here's what we do as Christians. We honor the laws. We don't get on a soapbox and demand that others do. That's a command to us as individuals. This is a problem that needs a lot of compassion, a lot of care, a lot of love. And no judgment. We don't have to be right. It doesn't matter which political party you belong to. This is not for the believer, and only for the believer, this is not a political issue. This is a love issue. The Samaritan was the one who loved his neighbor, the hated Samaritan. We have to be men and women no more for our love than for our opinions. Avery, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585. Let's go to Leah on line one. Leah, thanks for answering or for holding. You're on the line. Um, thank you, Pastor. Listen, I just had a question. Um, the church that we used to go to, I know you were talking about staying in that church and, and don't move and serve. Um, and we were going to a church, and we were quite happy. We were receiving the word. Uh, never, never did we doubt that there was any... Um, any wrong in the word that the pastor was teaching, uh, any wrong doctrine, that is, or anything wrong with the word. But they stopped uh, serving communion, and what they did was they put stations in the back of the church, and mm -hmm. anybody who wanted to have communion could have it any time they wanted to, like as a family or with friends or whatever. And it just became... An issue for us, I guess we were too used to mm -hmm. doing it corporately with the rest of the, with the whole body of Christ, and we left. Is that? I mean, was did we have done that? I mean, we're quite happy now where we're at, okay, and yeah. we're doing just fine. But, yeah, I, mean, Leah, I, 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 I think I think that is an issue that that 
if, if you can't reconcile um, um, not having corporate communion again, if you're not comfortable, that's an issue that, that I think would be something that you, you could justify leaving the church for. Uh, for the life of me, I can't understand uh, a, a church that would do that. I, it makes absolutely no sense. Not only is it important to come to the table together, we're, talk, we're told that, that in, in, in the book of Acts repeatedly. Um, Jesus said, when you do this, remember my death until I come. So yes. communion is really, really important to me. We do it on the first Sunday of every month here at Calvary Chapel. And I don't overdo it simply because I, I, uh, I, I don't want people to take it for granted or just to go through the motions. We also have some special occasions where we do what I call family-style communion, which sounds similar to what you're saying. But those are the exceptions and not the rule. But, but I would not be comfortable at all Leah, in a church where um, there was no corporate observation of the, of the Lord's Supper. So... Uh, that that is something that I think uh, is is um, would be a, an acceptable reason to leave the church. And now you've you've found another church. You're happy in that church. So now just take your gifts and go serve that church. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I just you know we stayed there for a while. We loved the pastor. We loved the whole church family. Uh, we had friends there, but it mm-hmm. just became. It just became too much for us, and and first I thought, well, maybe we were just too used to it instead of, no. you know, just did, did over curiosity, Leah. Curiosity, did you did you uh, talk to your pastor about it before you left? No, we didn't want to. Yeah. Like we didn't want to. Um, how can you say like stir the waters? <laughs> I don't know. We yeah, but, just felt like maybe we should just go. Yeah, you know, Leah, stirring, and and you've you've already made the choice, and you're happy where you are. But stirring the waters is when you go uh, to somebody, you know, in sort of challenging way, and and say, well, we just don't like what you're doing. But it's never stirring anything when you go to somebody in love, especially a pastor that you care deeply about, and say to him, you know, um, um, I, we're really uncomfortable with the fact that you, we've stopped celebrating communion as a church family corporately. And uh, I'd love to know why you did it. And and I'd also like the opportunity to change your mind if there's any way we could do it. it. We feel like we're being deprived of the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table as a church body and at least give them the opportunity. That's not being challenging or anything. And people can leave and they can leave on great terms. But uh, as a pastor, I'm just going to tell you this. Uh, I, I think one of the most difficult and painful things that we deal with is when people leave and say nothing. Mm. And, and uh, you know, uh, you notice finally, you know, we have a lot of people, so I can't, you know, we don't take roll call and we don't have a formal membership. So uh, if I don't see somebody for three or four weeks, I'll say to somebody, well, have you seen and so-and-so? And, and somebody said, no, I think they left the church. What do you mean they left? Nobody said anything to me. Why did they leave the church? And even after I contact people, sometimes they don't want to talk about it because it's a little embarrassing to them. I don't care about that. I just want my family to stay together. And and um, um, I, I would have preferred, Leah, that you spoke to the pastor in love and gave him a chance. Maybe the Holy Spirit uh, would use you to sort of prick their hearts a little bit and and reconsider the choice that was made. Now, if they didn't and they they they're fine with it, well, then you're equally fine with leaving, no problem. But there's never a, a uh, it's never a good thing when we leave a situation uh, without in love talking about it with the people. Um, just to go away, uh, not wanting to stir the waters, is is um, um, a little bit painful. So. Please consider yeah. that. Maybe you can. Maybe you can write. At this point, you can write him a, a note just to let him know that you're well. And and my advice would be to just say, you know, can I ask you for forgiveness because this is something that we should have come and talked to you about uh, before we left and we didn't. Um, but God bless you and and at least maybe the Holy Spirit can still work through you. Uh, I would really be uncomfortable in church that didn't celebrate communion uh, as a as a body. Well, I'll take your advice sending him a letter. I, I will. Good. Thank you very much, Leah. God bless you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. It is a difficult, difficult thing when a pastor 
finds out that somebody left. And, well, why'd they leave? Well, nobody knows. Uh, in spite of what most people think about pastors, a lot of people don't like authority. But we really, 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 really love the people in our church. I have a prayer wall in the office. It's Paula's office, but I go in there every day. Uh, a prayer wall because I can't see really well. I've got big pictures of people. And I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of pictures up there. And, and uh, every picture reminds me of somebody else. So when I want to pray for the people, uh, I want to see them. And I'm looking at pictures, and we got them spread out all over that office so I can go into all the corners of the office. And, and that helps me remember to pray for them. One thing that happens when you pray for people regularly is that you really love them. And when they leave, uh, and it's they just go, I, I don't stop loving them. And when somebody who you love leaves, it hurts. And so there's a lot of pain there. 340-9585. Wendy has a question. Wendy says, does the size of a church reflect on whether or not it is a good church? Wendy, the answer to the question is no. There's some really, really, really good, huge churches, and there's some really, really good, tiny churches. God loves people. I always say it this way. Uh, somebody sent to a rural area, they're going to be in a tiny church. Um, there's a, an area in a part of town that um, people don't go to, God loves them. And the pastor that he sends, he sends as his gift to that church because he loves them. Um, and you know, some men are gifted to uh, minister to a few. Some are gifted to minister to, to multitudes. Um, but by the same token, there's some really bad churches that are huge. Churches that don't tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them Jesus. <laughs> So uh, the size of a church has nothing to do with the quality of the church. The only thing that matters, and by the way, Wendy, some of the biggest churches in this country are some of the worst. Because what they do is they tell people what they want to hear and don't tell them what they need to hear. Instead of teaching the Bible, they just preach messages, topical messages, feel-good messages. Some of the biggest churches in this country, those are terrible churches. So when you're looking for a good church, it has nothing to do with size. Now, I will say this, and I hope I, I don't sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but a good church that's teaching the Word is a church that will grow. Now, it might grow from five to a hundred, but it's a church that's concerned for the lost. And, and because the church is concerned, because the Bible's being taught, the people in that church are going to be concerned for the lost, and they're going to be sharing with people. I think one of the one of the things I love watching the most here at Calvary Chapel is we have families who who when they come uh, first came, uh, you know they're 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 not saved. They're sitting in church. Uh, finally, the Spirit of God hits their heart. They get saved, and and a month later, a couple members of their family, the extended family, are here. And then a couple months after that, there's more people from their family tree in here. And then those people start bringing others. We have a, a couple of families, just like I'm describing, Wendy, who um, fill up entire rows, two and three rows of our sanctuary. Because they come, they make it a family time together. It's one gets saved, and then the, the dominoes begin to fall, and others get saved. So um, my point is that a church that's being taught, a church that's being given the heart of God, is a church that's going to grow. Not a big church, but a growing church. You'll also see in a good church, Wendy, you'll see people growing in maturity as believers. So that's the way we tell what's a good church and what's not a good church. Big churches and small churches both have God's blessing. There are big churches and small churches that Jesus doesn't even attend. So the idea is to look for the fruit of the Spirit in that church. And you know you're in a church that Jesus is in. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we're told Jesus walks among the, 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 the lampstands. The lampstands are the seven churches. Seven representing the whole of the body of Christ. I want Jesus walking around the middle of Calvary Chapel every time we open the doors. 
And I know if he's here, this is a healthy, well-balanced, growing church. Size has nothing to do with it, Wendy. Thank you for the question. 340-9585. Ken wants to know, what does it mean when Jesus says we can ask anything in his name and we will get it? Well, Ken, obviously we know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that all I have to do is say, uh, God, please give me a, a new Cadillac in Jesus' name. doesn't mean I'm going to get the Cadillac. So that's not what he means. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name, he's telling us to ask according to his will. In his name is not the words. It's not a formula that says, in Jesus' name. We have this tendency to, 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 to apply these little phrases at the end and, and understand literally that, well, if I say, in Jesus' name, God has to do it. That's to miss the point completely. To pray in Jesus' name doesn't mean to say the words. It means to pray in his will to pray for his will, to pray in fellowship with him. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And when we're praying in his name, then we're going to be praying the things he wants. And those are prayers he's going to answer. David says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't mean he's going to give you those new cars, new homes, and that new uh, boyfriend or girlfriend or the new spouse. Or It doesn't mean new job. It doesn't mean that. It means that the desires that are in your heart will have been placed there by him. And again, when we start praying in his will and for his glory, that's when prayers are going to get answered. And Ken, when those prayers start to get answered, that will turn you into a praying machine, I promise you. There's nothing quite like seeing the hand of God move in your life because of your prayers. And it encourages to pray all the more. So these are very, very important things. It does not mean, as is falsely represented in so many of these prosperity gospel churches, that all we have to do is name it and claim it, and God has to do it. That turns him into a cosmic concierge instead of almighty, holy God. So when Jesus says we can pray, ask anything in his name, believe me, we can ask anything in his name. So I hope that helps a little bit, Ken. Here's a question from Jane, uh, similar to the question I just asked before this. Uh, please discuss mega churches. Are they good or bad? Jane, they are neither uh, good or bad. The size of a church, as I explained just two questions ago, uh, really has nothing to do uh, with the value of that church. Now, when you talk about a mega church, obviously, you know, God gives some of us little sticks and he gives some of us really big sticks. And you can do a lot more damage with a big stick than a little stick. So uh, imagine for a moment a mega church, the numbers of people, the amount of money that they can bring in and the good that they can do with that money. So so there's virtue in being a huge, huge church, but only if you're doing with those resources what God wants you to do. I understand that we have to have big buildings. If you've got a lot of people, you need a big building. Um, there's a, the biggest church in San Antonio. is a church that... Uh, um, I, I visited their their, their uh, church building when they were building it, and then I went to a, a, a funeral there, and I got to have a chance to walk around the building a little bit. Uh, and, and this is a church that built this huge, huge building, and they did it wonderfully. It's not extravagant. It's not gaudy. Uh, they, they did it very practically. You could tell that they were concerned about budget. Um, um, uh, I, I would be proud if that was my church building. Do I have to say I don't have a church building? Oh, well, back to the point. I would be proud. I would say that's being a very good steward of God's money. On the other hand, I can see these churches that are so extravagant and so gaudy. Churches with elevators and churches with with uh, 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 unbelievable decor and expense put in. Almost like they're a monument to the pastor. Those are the kind of things that, that I struggle with personally. I don't have to stand before God. Those pastors do. Um, I, I, I just pray their heart will be found right. Um, but if you have a lot of people, you need a big building. So um, 
a mega church is neither good or bad. The quality of the church, again, is determined by the people there, determined by the message, determined by whether or not that church is submitted to the will of God and is doing the will of God. The fact that it's big doesn't mean it's good. One other comment on this, Jane. One of the problems with megachurches is that it's too easy for Christians. Now, this isn't the church's fault. This is the individual believer's fault. It's too easy for Christians to sort of go in like an invisible man or a woman and, and never really interact with anybody, never get involved. Just sort of walk in and walk out and not engage people, not engage the work that God has called you, not in, not utilize the gifts of the Spirit that God has given you. So that's the Christian's fault, not the church's fault. And every pastor of a mega church ought to really, really be exhorting people to serve. When you serve with people, you become so close with them. It's like a little family within a big family. And God wants us all to serve. So Jane, I guess that's... Uh, the best I can do with that. How are we doing on time here? Got two minutes. Let me give a two-minute, one-minute question. Uh, I can do this one. Uh, Harris says, if we accept God's will, is it faithless to pray for miraculous healing? No, uh, Harris, it's not faithless at all. In fact, uh, Paul tells us, with thanksgiving, to make our request known to the Lord. With thanksgiving, as long as your heart is grateful, then you can pray for whatever you want. I have a big imagination. I can pray for a lot of things, um, but my heart is always so filled with gratitude. If you have somebody in your life who needs a miraculous healing, by all means, pray, pray, pray for that healing. Hey, great questions today. We'd love uh, your calls. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. You're listening to the word to stand on for life. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at four o'clock. God bless you. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.